Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. Hello, hi everyone. So Emily, <laughs> we Hello. today we have uh, Emily Turner as our guest, and it is very exciting because I met Emily through uh, a group that she created called Psyching Out, which has been a great little hub for people to come together and talk about the application process. And now it's sort of been opened up to more graduate students uh, within the psychology field. And so Emily, if you'd like to introduce yourself and maybe talk a bit more about that. Sure. So I'm Emily. I work as a research assistant, a clinical research assistant at the University of Maryland Psychiatry Department. Um, I'm in a lab that focuses on services for psychosis and also a lab that um, researches addiction. And in my spare time, I try to go to grad school and uh, that process has been a journey for me. I am um, an older applicant. I graduated from undergrad 10 years ago. And the process to revamp and re-enter academia um, has been challenging for me. So I created this psyching out space um, with a friend who I met on Twitter who also uh, shared her difficulties with the application um, process, particularly for clinical psych. She is a third time applicant who just got in this year. Yay, Ara. Mm. And shout out to my collaborator in this venture. Um, and we created the space so that others would not need to navigate these sort of inherent challenges alone. Um, we benefited so much in the past year from each other's company and accountability and solidarity and knew that others could benefit just as much. So that's how Psyching Out was born. And right now it's a Slack channel, a Twitter, and we're working on a website that will be more of a um, more robust hub that has like a job board and a resources page. Um, so yeah, that's a bit about me. That's really awesome. I, I agree. I find that it's actually um, quite difficult for people who sort of like took a little bit, bit of a break from academia. And I personally think that's kind of weird when people call it a gap in academia because it's not really a gap, right? Like you're still working on something else or you're doing something else. Maybe you had a job. You know, some people don't have the financial privilege to go right away. It's underfunded across Europe. Um, so yeah. Right. And I feel very lucky that the only, like the most complicating factor is my age and my quote gap. Um, but that I also have the perspective that the gap was very critical to my growth and education just as a human. So mm -hmm. uh, I agree that calling it a gap and implying that it was somehow inadequate is not right. Yeah. Right. And it's mm -hmm. interesting because for other PhD programs, you think like older applicants are the ones who typically enter the realm of PhD programs. And that's sort of like the norm, but for some reason with psychology or even like clinical psychology in particular, that gap is uh, having to be explained. Yeah, right. I, I think for a clinical psych, um, usually applicants skew a little older, right? I think it's quite rare for people to get in straight out of undergrad or even having worked a year or two to get in. Yeah, I think it's become more of the norm, Emily. Would you say you agree? Yeah, it seems like you have to toe this line of 
getting some experience being mm. a very competitive applicant means that you have post back work experience, that you are a published researcher, that you <laughs> um, have honed and sort of identified and crystallized your research interests um, to make this match and map onto existing researchers that you're um, aspiring to work with, but to um, have taken too much time away or to take the time away from academia is potentially a question mark. So mm-hmm. it is the, the subtle balance, I suppose. Definitely. It's so strange. I, I thought that's the point of a PhD is that you learn how to publish and you learn how to be a researcher. So what's the point of doing a PhD if you have to get that like pre-training beforehand, then I don't know, <laughs> it's weird. I mean, I'm still learning, like I'm a first year and I honestly know so little. Like every day I, kn- I learn a little bit more and then I learn a little more about what I don't know as well. So. I, I don't know. I, I think even if you do have a lot of experience beforehand, you enter the program, hopefully you're still having, you know, the opportunity to grow as a researcher and you still have a lot to learn. Definitely. I, um, I'm biting my tongue a bit. I could rant and rant about um, just the expectations, especially for clinical psych and, but sort of generally for psych PhDs that you have developed your work to a certain point already and mm. that you are trained but you're entering a training program yeah um, exactly yeah this is definitely a rant friendly space <laughs> so feel free to <laughs> to go on but yeah it's definitely a very strange system and hopefully with groups like psyching out and the incoming group of people who are going to be entering the space changes can be made and can be seen for future mm-hmm. applicants as well so um, speaking then about psychology, Emily, what made you get interested in psychology to begin with? Was it something that you always knew you wanted to do? I am um, someone who definitely had an interest from a young age. My mom is a clinical social worker oh, wow. and my dad is a teacher and I saw my parents really thrive and um, in caring, quote, caring professions and having their work be sort of a vocation. So I was always drawn to um, some role in mental health. And I knew that I would pursue some role in the general realm of psychology or brain science. Um, But I was very intimidated in undergrad by statistics requirements, just because I had Uh, sort of struggled in high school to feel super competitive in um, the STEM subjects. I went to an all-girls school and we didn't have a computer lab. STEM was not very much the focus. Um, We had excellent writing courses and communications and liberal arts um, subjects, but I felt less, um, less prepared to take statistics and more advanced uh, math and science courses. So I majored in undergrad in history and philosophy and just knew that, okay, I'll pursue graduate school. And 10 years ago, it it wasn't abundantly clear that the the graduate level programming was as competitive as it is now. So I didn't have, um, and I didn't have guidance or mentorship from having studied it in undergrad to know that 
uh, potentially not majoring would possibly derail me a bit. Um, and it didn't derail me. I enjoyed those courses and those areas um, very much. And I also had a concentration in peace and justice studies where I sort of developed my already budding social justice bent on life and interest and outlook. Um, so I, I do not regret not studying psych in undergrad. Um, but knowing that my ultimate goal would be to be um, in the psychology field, there was this tension about when should I go back and how do I get back there um, as I took my immediate jobs out of school, which were unrelated to psych and were in the field of communications, especially working as a um, copywriter for nonprofits. I grew up outside of DC and DC is the nonprofit hub of the world. So um, those jobs were immediately accessible and that's what I did for the first five years of my career. And then about three years ago, I, um, saw an opportunity to shift back towards academia through higher ed. And I joined a lab at Virginia Tech that studies STEM education, programming and interventions, um, which really resonated with my sort of history of being STEM intimidated, STEM kind of ashamed. Um, and interestingly, the group, the interventions were being tested on uh, increasing representation for underrepresented groups in the fields of STEM. So that also matched well with my social justice interests. And that work was really rewarding. It was sort of a foray into academia. I helped with IRB stuff, collected data on humans, um, and was just reminded how much I want to study humans and behavior processes. So then about a year and a half ago, I, sorry, this feels really long-winded, but no, that's, please go ahead. <laughs> my, my journey to now has been literally a decade. Um, a year and a half ago, I started volunteering as an RA at a few local labs. Luckily in DC, there are tons of universities. Um, and I knew I needed to just start somewhere to make the leap from higher ed to psych. And so I volunteered in a lab on PTSD at George Mason University and a mindfulness lab at George Washington University. And uh, I also started taking classes to make up for that lack of psych training in undergrad. Um, and I knew that I wanted to do a postback role or um, fill that kind of role because I needed that experience, particularly as someone who didn't get any of it in undergrad. Um, so then this fall, I decided I would take advantage of the GRE free application cycle um, while applying to full-time postback jobs. And I um, received an offer and joined the lab at Maryland um, while applying, <laughs> which was just like a lot of uh, <laughs> undertaking at once once transitioning to a new job and going through that application process. But yeah, the, the, the interest in psych was always there. It's just been a journey. Um, I mean, that's an incredible journey, Emily, yeah. honestly. And I mean, it's so 
great to hear about people who didn't under major in psych in undergrad because then you get this intersectional perspective and already mm -hmm. from your research interests bringing together different aspects of psychology or even different aspects of social work into your future work is something that really you don't get that perspective if you've just done one thing maybe your entire undergrad or you don't really see that um, the same way as others may have who've had like more of a traditional training so it's definitely a huge I think advantage to have done that and I think that's actually quite critical especially given how interdisciplinary psychology is by nature I think the idea that you can just study psychology and not have a background or understanding of like a related field um, is quite detrimental actually I think it narrows your perspective the research you end up doing may not be um, as directly applicable to the general population, et cetera. I think it's really important to have that side perspective. Um, I think it's underemphasized, to be honest, in psychology. Yeah, I am. It does seem like there are these sort of predictable, um, expected, common pipelines into psych that um, preclude gaining some outside life experience and preclude studying in other fields. Um, so I do feel very grateful that while it has been somewhat of a windy road, I've gained tremendous insight and am excited and already see the fruit of um, matching and mapping that insight into my research. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, this cycle, as we've already heard, has been super brutal and just uh, a whirlwind of emotions for almost everyone uh, getting in or getting out or even being waitlisted. So, I mean, another year is just more experience, hopefully, and just more time to learn and, and really reflect on what it is that you want to do, which is seems to be pretty clear also from just listening to you and getting to know you better. Um, but would you like to talk more about like your interest in mindfulness and maybe pairing that with um, your interest in more serious mental health disorders? Sure. So um, one of the steps I took um, in the journey between uh, since graduating was to study yoga and to um, delve heavily into the practice for myself, but also for teaching it in my community and the benefits of mindfulness and the relationship of mindfulness to just, uh, you know, brain functioning were always very clear to me. Um, so I knew that I would want to study mindfulness in some capacity and, um, I was very lucky that I found a mindfulness lab when I first started volunteering and getting into psych um, as a volunteer RA. And it seems that the way mindfulness is approached in clinical, the field that I'm looking at pursuing, is that it's examined in relationship to a certain condition. And there are some foci on mindfulness for addiction, mindfulness for depression, and mindfulness for stress, mindfulness for pain relief. But I'm interested mostly in increasing access to mindfulness. And so I'm experimenting with the way that mindfulness is studied in clinical um, right now with looking at how it could be used for psychosis and how it could be used in addiction. Um, 
So I'm trying to integrate that with my interest in increasing access to it and um, increasing its utility generally. But I know that I need to start by focusing on the way the field approaches it, which is condition specific right now. It's hard to sort of shift the way that people think about mindfulness and also how they want to integrate that into their daily um, lives or even into uh, treatment methods. Yeah, I, guess, I, I think that we all in defining our research interests to get into programs do, you know, compromise a bit and conform to, well, what's being studied already and what are the current approaches? I need to petition myself as someone who can look at it through that lens in order to be a viable candidate. Um, but the hope is that once you gain your own training and your own experiences, that you can sort of self-define your research a bit more. Um, what's your favorite thing about um, this research process so far? Or if you have anything that's um, like least favorite or most difficult aspect? I don't want to say um, analysis because it's just newest to me. I just took my first statistics course um, a year ago and it's definitely a new language for me but that's keeping it exciting and fulfilling to have the the just the novelty and the the freshness of it but it's definitely what I'm least experienced with so like recruitment overlaps a lot with like communications. And I mentioned my previous past life in communications with writing and um, promoting and branding and outreach. So other facets of the research process come very easily. Um, as a history major, I love to read and review um, literature. It comes very naturally and easily. Another thing is just the initiation of the writing process. I enjoy writing. It's what I did professionally. But the there are stages of it that I don't appreciate as much as the overall concept. Um, and definitely the initiation and the starting up stages of writing for a project can be tough. Um, just I, I know what it is for me that makes it tough. And I think it's relatable. But um, Definitely something that I'm personally working on because I know that that's like a sticky spot. Yeah, the writing process can definitely be daunting and just the fear of failure and the fear of starting and then failing later is always something that's in the back of your head. But yeah, hopefully, I don't know, it gets better with time, although I still hear about professors talking about the difficulty of just sitting down and starting to write um, and just having to schedule out that time in your day to dedicates towards your writing, which can be difficult when you're juggling other things as well. So, yeah. And I wanted to quickly go back to the STEM uh, aspect of what you were talking about when you were um, in high school and how you didn't have computer labs or it, STEM really wasn't something that was encouraged in maybe young women in particular. And I wanted to talk about that article that you shared in Psychonauts where it was talking about how um, women are often told that they can't code or that they're not capable of doing statistical analyses and how that's just a whole, it really oh, does. Yeah. 
Right. And it just completely, mm -hmm, and it just completely shapes the entire way that you look at these things and you see it as something of more of like a challenge or something that you can't do. And then that just completely systemically prevents you from pursuing these sorts of career paths that are more maybe male focused because that's how men have framed it for so many years. And, it, and it's not only that, it's the fact that a lot of um, like CS professors or data analysis professors are heavily male, like it's, it's a heavily male field, right? So you end up having like data analysis or programming courses that are taught by male professors who don't really understand what level you're at or how to approach this with a more inclusive manner. Um, they might, you know, call male students a lot more than female students and pay more attention to male students instead. And then all of that, you know, just forms this kind of implicit priming that sends the message to female students that this is just not for you. You are secondary in this process. You are not to be prioritized. You're not supposed to be good at this. Um, and sorry, that's just total bullshit. I, I don't buy any of that. And I think like for me, I also definitely face that um, challenge as well, where I was quite timid, you know, when it comes to coding in my undergrad. But I have to say that what made the difference was that in my final year, I took a Python course and it was taught by a female um, instructor who was actually quite near to me in age. So she was an adjunct and she was like, I think only a year older than me and she graduated with a CS degree um, and then went on to take this adjunct faculty position to teach this introductory Python course. And it was hands down the best programming course I've ever taken. It was, um, it was taught with clarity. It was taught with system. Um, I was able to catch on with a lot of it, even though like I'm not even the type of student to like follow along in lecture minute by minute. I was able to follow on quite, we quite well. Um, I have to say that in terms of quality, I found it to be much higher than the pro programming courses that I've, you know, been given by male instructors in the past um, or just like even YouTube channels that are narrated by male programmers. Um, yeah, I, I do think in general, there's a very toxic environment in terms of like coding. Um, I mean, case in point, you can just look on Stacks Overflow, just see the responses, like the type of responses that people usually get, especially for beginners. Um, at the other day, I saw this like R question. Um, it was a very simple and basic question just about like variable naming. And the most, the response that had the most upvotes was literally a one sentence that said, the problem is not with your code, but with your basic understanding of R. And it had the most upvotes. It was the top answer. <laughs> oh. oh my gosh. That's so disappointing. Yeah, right? So disappointing. Gosh. Yeah, I mean, that just, representation in this field really matters and having that sort of role model who is mm -hmm. teaching this course in a really accessible way makes all the difference and seeing someone else who looks like you or, or is like you doing this gives you the confidence to do it yourself um absolutely yeah. i also think there's a lot of gatekeeping when it comes to coding there's this sense of like oh like certain languages are not worth learning or there are certain language languages that are just better um you know there's a lot of gatekeeping for sure when it comes to coding like there's like certain techniques that before I've tried them myself, I would think, oh, like those are super complicated statistical concepts. I cannot grasp them. I probably cannot do them. But then I take a course on it or I try to look into it on my by my own. And I realized it's actually not 
as complicated or difficult as people make it out to be. So that kind of raises the question, well, why is this, why is this this like mystery, you know, shield to the entire field of like, just like programming of like, this is supposed to be super high level and difficult and complicated. And then you start doing it and it's like, yeah, I mean, it's challenging, definitely, but it's not impossible. Like they make it out to be, right? Absolutely. There was this, um, I don't know the source, but in the the lab that I worked with at Virginia Tech that looked at STEM development, there was um, someone would continually mention that like the, the uh, trajectory for male and female performance in STEM subjects starts to change um, around seventh grade because apparently like around fifth grade, 11, 12 years old, the female student population generally begins to understand that um, men and women are viewed differently in our society. And so that frame colors the way that they see themselves in specific areas of performance. And so by about seventh grade, that's sort of internalized that there's a difference between male and female in my world. And I don't know, I forget the mechanism that reinforces that that happens around seventh grade, I guess, as you begin to approach pre-algebra and stuff. Um, But I, I just remember that really resonating with my own experience. When I was in middle school, I really loved algebra. It was fun. Um, but by the time I went to high school and took algebra two, it got a little more dicey and complex. But at the same time, my brother was getting multiple tutors and was taking extra additional math courses that were more advanced than what was offered at his school at the local university. And I just didn't get that attention, that option, that opportunity from my parents, from my teachers, from my community. Um, even though I found algebra really fun, really interesting and had the same desire to succeed as my brother. Wow. That, yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, how these processes are just reinforced by everyone, like your parents, the school, the community, just in media, even, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's very difficult to escape that. Um, Yeah. And I think that's actually a pretty, like, as sad as that sounds, I think it's a pretty common story among, like, women and, like, girls. Like, and it's not even just in the U.S. specifically. Like, I went to a middle school in China, and I always, we rank everybody by their scores by subject, and I always ranked pretty high in math starting out. And then the teachers and also, like, the parents at parent-teacher conferences, they would tell my parents to not hold on to it um, because I'm going to drop later on because girls always do drop in math later on. Basically, just like don't celebrate, you know, the fact that she's really good at math now. Just wait and see. Wow. So prepared. Super fun. <laughs> and then it just causes a self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy when you hear exactly. that and then you just start to drop yeah. because that's what everyone's telling you to do. Exactly. I had a long history of comparing myself to this older brother. So that that def that feedback definitely 
hit home. Yeah. And then you just, it stays with you. I mean, how do you unprogram or deprogram that from your mind? And from later on when you have to encounter these sorts of um, experiences or these opportunities that you never had any background in because it was never something that was invested in you. Like you were never at the same starting point. So now like you're just, you're kind of focusing on just the things that other people had, but you didn't. And now because of that, you have to work like, twice or three times as hard in order to get get to where they are and and that's not fair and I think that's I don't think it's something that like a white man thinks about I don't think they look at other people and be like well we were not at the starting point you know to be the same I don't think they think about that but it's something that I think about all the time even if I'm just facing like other white male PhD students um, who are like around the same year as me with the same kind of experience I'm like I don't know if we started out the same though like I don't think we had the same starting point. You know, it's something that's constantly in the back of my mind. And again, like I'm not encouraging that. So if anyone's listening, I am not encouraging to do kind of this like self-destructive comparison, but I'm just saying that I think when you're not a white male, it is sort of a constant thought sometimes. And when I've described it as like this self, this um, STEM shame that I have, the word shame has really resonated. So I don't think you're alone in internalizing that comparison and that it sticks and it it digs deep. I think that really um, a lot of us feel it and a lot of us feel it constantly. I also wonder if that's why um, that what that's what makes it even more difficult to listen to a like a white male lecturer when when they teach a STEM subject or when they teach programming, because then I'm just focused on like you know, the fact that you're a white man and you're just another white man who's very good at programming or who's in STEM and who probably doesn't even, you know, know how you got there. Um, But also, you know, like I I sort of like, I I look at social power and it's my research interest. So I think that kind of biases my thinking. So that's constantly just on my mind. Um, Me too. So yeah, I had the, I had the precise experience over the summer trying to take a Python course through MIT's edX program online. And uh, yeah, a very, very um, white male professor teaching it. And I dropped out after like four weeks, like there was an exam on 4th of July weekend and I don't celebrate 4th of July avidly, but I still was like, I'm taking this day off. Um, And just the tone was very much um, sort of just assuming a sort of baseline understanding that I didn't have. So I knew it was, I would, I needed more context and maybe a more inspiring teacher. It's demoralizing having that Um, as, as like a professor and then knowing that you can learn the subject, but then not having any of the context being provided. I mean, it just makes it seem like it's impossible when it's really not. So, yeah. yeah. And like speaking of which, I actually think it's, it might actually be easier for, uh, for women and just other non-white males to honestly find independent resources instead of relying on courses that may not have been designed for people like us. Um, honestly, the best training I've had are either with female professors or just resources I find online, just like random like YouTube videos or just like by Googling. Um, I don't I don't really feel like the majority of my programming knowledge can really be attributed to like a course that's like an official training course that I've taken that's taught by white men, um, except at Cambridge, they have like these 
programs where they have a series of lecturers come and they demonstrate how to program um, like doing different techniques. And that's different because they do have quite a few female instructors as well, which I think does help even implicitly because I'm like, well, okay, then I don't have to be hyper-focused on the fact that you have like a hundred percent white male teaching me um, programming. So yeah, I actually definitely would encourage people to look into um, resources that are free or independently available. Um, just try to find like the resource that works for you instead of thinking that you took a class and it didn't work, you must be bad at programming. I don't think that's true. So it really depends. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of resources, it's, Ikim and I were just talking about this earlier about how there just does not seem to be like a centralized resource area for anything to have to do with like psychology or, or psychology PhD. Or, and I know that this is on Twitter everywhere about the hidden program and the hidden agenda of like, these sorts of, um, what's it called? Just institutions and it just makes it impossible to find like a centralized source of- The politics. Right, just everything just seems to be so hidden and, and difficult to maneuver, especially if you're first gen or um, a person of color or uh, just anyone from a marginalized group, it just can become impossible. Or even someone who's never had like any uh, outside discussion with people who are in the psychology um, profession. So it can just be very difficult not having that centralized source. And so I'm glad, Emily, you're working on creating that sort of like, <laughs> I know it's difficult okay. because <laughs> it's not going to be. It's astounding how there there is all this clamoring on Twitter about the desire for it, but right. it's still not out there. Um, right. But I will say, uh, on not specific to psych, there's an amazing account on Twitter, Open Academics, that has awesome sort of like infographics, just one pagers per topic around academic work and access to templates and tools that are very easy to, um, to access, but not all in one place. So I love that. And to me, that's, the, that's a hub for just general academic work. Oh, that's yeah. incredible that these accounts on Twitter are trying to do something like that. I think the lack of like a centralized resource hub is probably deliberate. Right, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's astonishing yeah. that we are all aware of it, but not doing it. What is this unconscious like desire to yeah, exactly. not collaborate and not share? Which is quite weird. I don't know if that's the case for other fields, but my impression is that in psychology, like obviously as a novice researcher, I feel like there's generally a more competitive atmosphere. And I've talked to like um, a friend of mine who's doing a biochem PhD. Um, and she told me that that's not the case in biochem because everyone's doing something like that's different. So like there's really no need to feel like you're competing with other people. But like, obviously we're both, you know, total newbies in this field, um, in this like academic world. So I don't really know. Um, just like how professors would think, or maybe that's a general academic problem, this toxic competition. It also depends. Hmm. I think, yeah, the general academia as a whole could definitely be seen. I mean, it's always been that way with like the ivory tower and just keeping things within the institutions or within like the certain field without having to like disseminate it, which is why it's so important to have like that open science communication and making sure that your research can be digestible for the people who aren't in academia or who aren't able to access like these super expensive research articles that you 
come out with so yeah, which, uh, which is insane like the fact that you have to pay like so much money to access a research article yeah, yeah i like to think that it's not specific to psych but it's still discouraging to think that it's a generally like overwhelming uh global issue with academia yeah so sort of either either situation stinks yes. yeah <laughs> no it's strange because it's not even like super or it's not directly relevant to the research that we do. Cause like, I love doing research. I really love it. I would like to do it for life if possible, but I don't know if I can do it for life. Um, Cause I don't know if I can make it in academia. Like, I don't know if I will be able to navigate the politics or to tailor myself in a way that would look great for a hiring committee. Um, just like all the little things of like, navigating things that I don't think I was ever trained for, nor am I especially interested in training myself for. Um, I think that stuff is going to get me. <laughs> I think that's what's going to, if I ever leave academia, I think that's going to be the reason. It's not going to be because I just got tired of research. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> right. It's definitely a culture question and a culture fit and a, a desire to conform to a culture that is inherently and visibly flawed yeah uh, I I feel the same that that will be the reason why I don't pursue after training pursue a job in academia yeah I, I was gonna say that um we had this virtual SPSP conference and they had a special section for jobs outside of academia so like they brought in like a couple people with PhDs who opted to join the industry after they got their PhD and they gave a presentation and basically was like, listen, what you are trained for, it's not what the industry is looking for. You basically have to make completely different CVs and you have to get like all the things that academics would probably consider kind of frivolous, like extracurriculars and student like organizations and internships, et cetera, that are non-research focused. And they were like, look, people might shame you for leaving academia, but if you feel like that's the right call, just do it. Also, you can do research outside of academia. And I was like, wow, yeah, nobody, nobody told me that. That's, uh, that's good to know, you know. <laughs> oh. And how would you balance or teeter wanting to consider both if they require such different things? That, that pressure is such a burden. Exactly. Uh, but I'm glad people are speaking to. I actually heard about that that talk at SPSP, um, I'm really glad people are speaking out to hear the alternatives. Exactly. I, I think we may have to. I mean, we do have to because realistically, they just cannot supply all the academic jobs for given the amount of people who graduate with PhDs, even though that's still a very small population. It is like the actual job market is even smaller, which is kind of insane. Yeah. And it's so unfortunate that the people who should be in academia, who could potentially change academia, are being discouraged from even entering it or just having all these barriers are there that are preventing them from actually entering and making those changes. So then it's just sort of like the same sort of cycle keeps going on and on. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that we're talking about it now is, is indicative of thinking differently at the least. Definitely. And we, as we all know from Twitter, there's a lot of talk about thinking differently. 
100%. Now it's time for action and for actual changes and for just making them more of a conversation that's normalized and right. presented at these like academic conferences of like the different options that you have. Um, and then ha maybe having a talk about how you can balance the, the uh, academia requirements with also having like a CV that you can present to the industry, which as Emily mentioned, it's very difficult to teeter that line. Um, this is like definitely a really big topic like I feel like we could definitely go on and on about access in higher ed first of all why there is no access and how we would increase it and I'm just gonna like add a point to that that honestly I think the simplest way is just to start hiring women start hiring minorities start hiring people who are queer start having a more diverse, you know, photo of who's working in academia, I think that's the best way to substantiate any sort of change. Like, it's not just the fact that there's a small job market for PhD students in academia. It's the fact that when those available positions um, are disproportionately given to white men who yeah. make hiring decisions when, you know, they're at the top. And I just, I, I don't think that's sustainable. That just contributes to the problem you know, that academia needs to change. We need to increase diversity. We need to um, be more transparent and do more open science. But the fact that that's not happening, I think is because the people who are still making decisions tend to hold that conservative thinking. And I'm sorry to say it, and I'm sure somebody will, you know, hold me for it, but I think those people are white men. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. And when we talk about psyching out, like we constantly reference this pseudo tagline of we're here to change who does psych in order to change who it serves. Nothing will change about um, the research topics the research areas until we change the researchers themselves. And it's clearly necessary. There's this huge, huge void and there's this huge elite issue um, right now who's conducting psychological research and who has been forever. So yeah. I concur 100%. Yeah. And I think people forget, especially psychology researchers, we like to think that we're like quite liberal, that we're left-leaning, we're relatively progressive because we study, especially in social psych, we think, well, we study social psychology. How could we not understand social issues from a more egalitarian point of view? Well, social psychology wasn't founded by a diverse group of people. We look, just pick any social psychology textbook. <laughs> and look at the no academic field are we citing? right no academic field was established by egalitarian people the whole premise was to train elites and to be yeah. separate from the masses because you were some designated um preordained seeker of truth and i think that's easy to forget the the roots and the history that have shaped this mm -hmm. but and, it, and furthermore, it was not only for training elites, it was for training elites around religion. So subjects that were sanctioned by an already existing immense hierarchy and mammoth institution that did not include everyone, particularly women. No. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just dangerous for um, people in higher ed to assume that just because we might have more education or just because like we study something that's relevant that we must by default be um, egalitarian. And I, like, I'm sorry, that's just not true. Um, I also think in psychology, there's a, you know, th there are psychologists who are quite conservative to be honest, and you can find them on Twitter. I'm not gonna name them, but 
I, I think we sort of like have an idea of the type of people we're talking about. You know, they'll say things about like um, that Black Lives Matter is just like racist or certain like gender stereotypes. And they try to qualify their statements from a scientific perspective. Um, and like, I'm sorry, I think that just goes to show science is not, it's not objective. It's not like the universal truth. You cannot say that I am a scientist and therefore what I find or what I study or what I say is the objective truth. We can say with greater certainty, you know, when we find a bunch of results or whatever, we can say with this amount of certainty that we think this will be true, but. Yeah, yeah. we've all seen, you know, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, influential established clinical psychologists say that um, grad students are paid adequately and uh, uh, they should be paying their dues that labor is um, that their labor is less than what um, should be compensated normally. Yeah, very disheartening uh, conversation. But thankfully, there were other people who were on there saying that, no, that is just wrong. And uh, people should be students should be compensated way more for the work that they do, especially clinical psychologists who are doing free clinical work without any compensation and just having that emotional burden on top of the physical burden of doing everything else and juggling research and um, supervision and courses and just everything. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely people should be given a more livable wage than what yeah. they are now. And even just from like a purely economic perspective, like losing a little bit of money at from for someone at the top is going to matter way less than giving that small amount of money small amount of money to them um you know to someone at the bottom like that's just we know that to be true like a hundred dollars is going to mean very little to a millionaire than it does to a homeless person just was going to add that I'll, I'll, some folks who were commenting you know well at the end of the day it's a funding issue but it's also an allocation issue there is funding and it's allocated um, by people who also want to protect themselves. Yes, absolutely. The more we talk about it, hopefully the more people listen and do something to change it. Yeah, I also think the problems we've raised definitely cannot be solved. Like, I know we portray them to be like, we know what we're talking about and we know all the issues and to a degree we do. But I also want to acknowledge that these are really tough issues that like are very difficult to solve. But what's disheartening is that I don't think it is really the goal for most academics to solve these particular issues. Um, and I think that's, that's in a way a bigger issue is that we still sort of have to convince people that this is a problem, that it's right. a problem that we're underpaying researchers, that we're underpaying grad students, that it's a problem that we don't have a very diverse representative group of grad students or academics, that people on the hiring committee still skew heavily to white males. We're still having to convince people that these are true and we'll still get, you know, like people like countering our points by saying, well, that's just not true or that men are just naturally better at STEM or that you can't change nature, et cetera, whatever bullshit counter argument. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think we're even honestly at a stage where we can begin to, you know, pull up our sleeves and start solving these issues because we're still at the stage where people don't acknowledge that these are issues. Um, yeah, and that's we're raising consciousness, but also I think like this is an action of itself, talking about it on a Sunday morning 
um, gathering multiple voices at once, creating spaces to, um, you know, cancel the GRE, whatever. We're moving towards action, but it is, we are the ones who are tasked with prioritizing the conversation and translating it into action. It's absolutely the case that it's on us. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. sad that it's on the people who are at the most vulnerable position in their careers when it should be, the onus should be on the people who are established and people who are comfortable in their positions and who have the platform to speak out and face these issues. But again, I guess these issues maybe help them. So right, right. <laughs> why would they want to want to conundrum. But <laughs> definitely, definitely to reiterate what Ekam said, it's it's a complex, monstrous uh, force of issues and problems to address. So it is, I don't want to proclaim that I have all the answers either. Um, I'm just encouraging active, active participation. 100%. And that all begins with talking about it on a Sunday morning (laughs) and being open and honest about experiences that people may not have been comfortable to talk about in the past because it was shamed. Um, it's an uphill battle, but one worth fighting. Amen. <laughs> um, well, Emily, thank you so much for being here. And I know we could go on for hours and hours, but we really want you to, to appreciate your time and to hopefully maybe even go outside and enjoy the, the beachy weather. Um, but any takeaways from just this conversation or just in general things that you want people to know about? Uh, I think that the point that we have discussed um, that resonates the most and may resonate out there is that the, the experiences that make you feel isolated and make you feel ashamed also unite you with others who struggle. And when you recognize and see that in each other, you can um, immediately receive some sense of comfort. You can perhaps reorient towards purpose and direction. And it's extremely powerful to know that your struggle is not futile and certainly not in isolation. So I'm just, I think that solidarity underpins progress and um, want everyone to know that there's also spaces that can quickly connect you with others um who struggle similarly beautifully said beautifully said and we will definitely be linking all the different resources and and groups that we talked about including psyching out in the description and on our twitter when we posted um so yeah much appreciated and thank you for sitting down and having this conversation with us yeah we'll have to talk much more Yes, definitely will. This will be a weekly meeting now where we discuss these issues. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much. You're impressed with your work. More power to you. Yes.